Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. This is Dr. Robert Geiser, and I will be discussing anesthesia considerations for the patient undergoing surgery during pregnancy. When providing anesthesia for the patient requiring non-obstetric surgery, there are four goals that must be maintained. One is maternal safety, two is fetal safety, three is the avoidance of any agents associated with pterogenicity, and four, the avoidance of preterm labor. In terms of the reasons a pregnant patient may require surgery during pregnancy, the most common is appendicitis. The leading cause of the acute surgical abdomen in the pregnant patients is appendicitis. Other causes of surgery during pregnancy include cholelithiasis as well as trauma. When evaluating the pregnant patient who has experienced trauma, it is important to remember that this patient is at risk for abruption and that abruption is best detected with electronic fetal heart rate monitoring. In regards to maternal safety, it really means that you consider the physiologic changes of pregnancy when designing your anesthetic plan. All organ systems are affected. In regards to the respiratory system, there's an increase in minute ventilation to meet the increased oxygen demands. This increase in minute ventilation occurs because of an increase in tidal volume and respiratory rate. In regards to the inspiratory reserve volume, the expiratory reserve volume, and the residual volume, they all decrease. In regards to the airway, there is the concern that the pregnant patient may be harder to intubate. And in fact, when using the Malampati classification, which has been adapted to include a class four, there is an increase in classification as the pregnancy increases. And in fact, in a cohort of 242 pregnant women followed throughout their gestation, at 38 weeks, the number of class four airways increased by 34%. It is important to note that this increase in airway classification correlates with the gain in body weight. In regard to the cardiovascular system, there is an increase in cardiac output, which increases by 30 to 40%, with the maximum reached by 24 weeks gestation. This increase in cardiac output is a result of both an increase in heart rate and an increase in stroke volume. When providing anesthesia for the pregnant patient requiring surgery, it is important to remember aortocable compression. It has been shown that the fetus will not compress the aorta even at term and even if the patient is supine. However, the fetus can compress the vena cava starting somewhere around 20 weeks gestation. Hence, it is important to maintain left uterine displacement to prevent this vena cava compression, which will decrease venous return and decrease cardiac output. In terms of gastrointestinal changes, it has always been assumed that pregnant patients are full stomachs. 
However, current research suggests that not all pregnant patients are full stomachs and that you are able to identify those who should be considered by full stomachs by soliciting for symptoms of reflux disease. One of the most important changes that has occurred in obstetrics is the fact that pregnancy does not equate with a full stomach. It is the process of labor that delays gastric emptying. Any pregnant patient in labor should be considered a full stomach. And in regards to the central nervous system, we do know that pregnancy decreases MAC. However, MAC is a, at the level of the spinal cord and a reflection of a spinal cord reflex. The actual amount of anesthetic required to anesthetize a pregnant patient is no different than that for a non-pregnant patient. In regards to the second goal of fetal well-being, the most important thing to remember is to take good care of the mom. If you take good care of the mom, you will be maintaining fetal well-being. Other things that must be maintained is oxygenation as well as good uterine blood throw through strict adherence to uh, blood pressure control. In regards to the avoidance of any agents which have teratogenetic effects, it is important to remember that for that to occur, it requires a specific agent at a specific dose at a specific time period during embryogenesis. To align all those, you can realize that it would be very difficult to occur. And very few of our agents are associated with teratogenicity except nitrous oxide. The current recommendation is to avoid nitrous oxide during pregnancy. There has been a recent controversy regarding the effect of anesthesia on the developing brain. This concern came from a study done in 2003 where eight seven-day-old rats were exposed to midazolam, nitrous, and isoflurane for six hours. Afterwards, there was impaired memory and uh, an inability to acquire new knowledge or to learn. When the rats were sacrificed, they noticed widespread apoptosis throughout the developing brain. What has subsequently been shown that this vulnerability to apoptosis of the de developing brain occurs during the period of synaptogenesis. You may be asking why is this important when providing surgery to the pregnant patient requiring uh, non-obstetric surgery is that this period of synaptogenesis begins in the third trimester of pregnancy and hence has raised the concern regarding the provision of anesthesia during the third trimester. All agents have been associated with this apoptosis to the point where in December of 2016, the FDA issued a warning that repeated or lengthy use of general anesthesia and sedation during surgeries of procedures in children younger than three or pregnant women in the third trimester may affect the development of the child's brain. What is important that in 2019, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists came out with the statement that there is no evidence that in utero human exposure affects the developing fetal brain. This statement is very important for the anesthesiologist in that the current recommendation is that there is never a delay 
for a medically necessary surgery or procedure because of gestation. Elective surgery should be postponed till after delivery. However, medically necessary surgery should occur uh, at the time period in which it is needed. In regards to fetal safety, another thing that should be considered is the fetal heart rate monitor. There is curtain huge debate of whether or not the fetal heart rate should be monitored during surgery. One of the most important things is that it cannot interfere with the surgical field. And the thought is, is that it allows the anesthesiologist to ensure that the intrauterine environment is optimized with blood pressure and oxygenation. Reliable fetal heart rate monitoring intraoperatively can occur somewhere around 20 weeks gestation. And I think the key is the thought is, is that any changes in the fetal heart rate may suggest that there's been a compromise of uterine blood flow. The important thing that the anesthesiologist must remember when, when the fetal heart rate is monitored during uh, surgery is that there will be a loss of beat-to-beat -beat variability. The tracing appears very flat. There will be no decelerations. There will be no uh, bradycardia, uh, but there will be a loss of beat-to-beat -beat variability. Systematic reviews have examined fetal heart rate monitoring and there has been questionable benefit. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have issued these recommendations. If the fetus is pre-viable, heart tones should be checked before and after the procedure. If the fetus is viable, it is important to check contractions and fetal heart rate before and after. Intraoperative monitoring is based on a the decision of all the providers, but the decision should be made on a case-by-case -case basis. At a minimum, if you do intraoperative fetal heart rate monitoring, it requires the immediate availability of an obstetrician if there should be an emergency cesarean delivery required. Other recommendations that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have issued regarding surgery during pregnancy is that uh, corticosteroids should be administered for fetal benefit when the fetus is viable and a preterm gestation, as you would normally give with preterm labor. This recommendation occurs because there is the risk of preterm labor after the surgical procedure. Another point that must be considered is that there must be appropriate perioperative DVT prophylaxis because we do know the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy places these patients at particular risk of a, a deep venous thrombosis in the postoperative period. I'd like to just discuss two surgical procedures that you will encounter when, uh, uh, in your practice. One is laparoscopic surgery. The current recommendation for laparoscopic surgery is, again, the DVT prax uh, prophylaxis. And the other most important thing is that when accessing the abdomen, it should through be an open technique. The trocar should not be introduced blindly when the patient is pregnant. Another procedure that I wish to discuss is actually not a surgery in the pregnant patient. It's just a recent change that has occurred, and you will notice when you are on the labor floor. This is for bilateral tubal ligations. For currently for bilateral tubal ligations, which are done for women who desire infertility, 
the current uh, technique is that the tubes are identified, a small snip is removed, and the tubes are tied. However, it has been shown that many serous endometroid and clear cell cancers come from the fallopian tube. Removal of the tube decreases the risk of ovarian cancer by 70% because the cancer tends to start in the distal tube. The reason to, uh, to think about complete removal of the tube as compared to a small SNP is that complete removal of the tube is a non-reversible procedure. Currently, it has been examined. Removal of the tube adds about 15 minutes to the procedure and does not increase the risk of infection, does not increase the risk of complications, and does not increase the risk of bleeding. My uh, take is that you will see a greater use of the complete cell pangectomy as compared to the tying of the tube when providing anesthesia for bilateral tubal ligation. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.